Welcome to The Banker Midweek, your weekly look at what the industry is talking about, offering information bankers like you need to know. Hello, today your midweek editors are, as always, Liz Lumley, and joining me as well is Barbara Pianese, back for round two. Hello, Barbara. Hello, Liz. How are you doing? Very good, very good. So, as our listeners know, The Banker Midweek is our weekly discussion of stories which are live on The Banker site and newsy bits that will influence future banker stories. But before we get to those... Um, I had a lovely sunny walk to work this morning. Spring is almost sprung and coming soon. Um, and I felt, I, Barbara, I felt at peace. I felt oh, hopeful. Good. good. Give me, give me the recipe for that. <laughs> I felt because I think all the banks have been tucked up and safely in their beds and no one is collapsing or dying this okay. week. Yeah. Hopefully, knock on knock on whatever wood this table is made of. So I wanted to, I wanted to take a moment to uh, relax. Okay. <sighs> Actually, I think we're both relaxed because we both came back from trips. Um, so you you spent uh, some time in Panama uh, at, at an event. So I want to I want to know all about it, and I want to know what you learned and what you did there. Yes. So I was in Panama for the uh, annual meeting of the Inter American Development Bank, which is one of the most important multilateral bank active in in uh, in. Latin America. And it was the um, annual meeting, so there were a lot of um, finance ministers of the region, economic minister, and they were discussing about the outlook, the economic outlook of the region. Um, so it was quite a good opportunity to interview a few of them, and you can find the interviews, the video interviews on our website, and to discuss about the region. And I think uh, in this moment, uh, the region is really facing a number of challenges, including uh, growing social demands, limited fiscal resources, and um, low productivity and growth. So there were a lot of um, discussions about that. And uh, in terms of decision, I think it was quite relevant that they were discussing about how to improve the development effectiveness impact of the organization which is quite a relevant topic also for other organizations such as the World Bank, etc. So I think this will be one of the main issues the organization will work on forward in the next uh, year. So how to make sure that they are really delivering uh, development impact, their projects are really valuable. Mm, interesting. And, and as, as Barbara mentioned to our listeners, the videos uh, you did, how many did you do? Uh, four. Are, are live on the banker.com website right now, so I highly recommend you go and watch them, but not until you have finished listening to the Banker Midweek podcast, of course. So I've also come back from a trip. Um, I was in beautiful Lake Como. Yes, we all live the glamorous life, uh, where I moderated a debate on decentralized finance versus traditional finance for the European house Ambrosetti, which is an Italian think tank. Um, and they had their annual, their 34th annual forum, the Outlook on Economy and Finance. Now, this was a, a closed door forum, so I can't really talk a lot of too much. But the audience was was pretty open to, um, you know, the the future of of digital assets and and where we're going with tokenization. And there was lots of talk about inflation. Um, and so some people were rather pes- pessimistic about the global economy, but a few well-known economists who were there. Um, are under the belief that uh, inflation is coming down very soon. So, okay. so it depends when is this very soon, right? <laughs> I know. It's like, well, how long is a piece of string? But we'll see. I mean, a lot of people are predicting another rate rise from both uh, some of the big uh, central banks around the world. So, yeah, we'll 
we'll see hopefully well in the in the the, the glittering shores of lake como there are a few well-known economists who think it's coming down, so we'll see. <laughs> but it was interesting. So it came up today, um, the edi our editor, Joy McKnight, put a blog up about is blockchain on the cusp of breakthrough. And it's interesting because I actually mentioned this report on stage when I was moderating um, the panel about decentralized finance. And this is uh, Money, Token, and Games, Blockchain's Next Billion Users and Trillions in Value. And this came out from City. Um, and they've got some really interesting, uh, they're very bullish on tokenization. And in it, it said, tokenization of financial and real work assets could be the killer use case driving blockchain breakthrough, with tokenization expected to grow by a factor of 80 times in private markets and reach to up to $4 trillion in value by 2030. So they've obviously, there's a, the city seems to think there's a huge, uh, a huge future for what do you what do you think about that? Um, I mean, it's interesting. You know what what tends to happen with discussions around crypto and blockchain is there's a lot of nonsense. I think around the current state of crypto, I think it's predatory. I don't like the way it's marketed. I don't like the culture around it. However, looking at this, you know, uh, structure of tokenization of assets in a, in a in a centralized environment i find really fascinating i think that's one of the reasons why city finds it fascinating so looking at how they can use elements of distributed ledger to prove you know to transfer value to look at how they can use tokenization in the future i think that has a lot of legs and it's sometimes it's hard to separate the sort of consumer side of the the crypto bro culture which i have no time for at all but yeah i think i mean four trillion dollars in value by 2030 is something not to ignore i think anyway so let's get to some news on the site right now in addition to barbara's uh reporting from panama so our cover story today uh for the uh, april issue is asia fintech surge under investor focus from our asia pack editor kimberly long she is actually on sabbatical right at the moment in Japan, so she's going to come back fluent in a Japanese language when she comes back. But she's posting regularly on Twitter if you want to follow uh, Kimberly's uh, journeys uh, in Japan right at the moment. But it was very interesting. I mean, we look at um, the, the, the tech stocks globally have faced a downturn over the past year. Um, and I think Europe and the U.S. have, have uh, faced a lot of the, that downturn. However, Asia has always been a really kind of a ripe space, especially in, in the fintech space. So one of the things in the article that it said is the Asia's fintech space continues to enjoy significant funding as investors look to tap into this expanding market. Um, this is from the Pulse of Fintech H2 uh, 2022 report uh, from KPMG. So according to KPMG, they outline how fintech investments in Singapore alone during 2022 reached a three-year high with a total of $4.1 across 250 deals. So Asia is still a right place for fintech investment. But there was another part of this article, the cover story, that caught my eye. And I think it, it kind of has relevance to a lot of things we're seeing in the fintech space right at the moment. And it talks about banks, new banks, getting banking licenses. So Australia uh, gave four new banking licenses uh, over the past few years to uh, Judo Bank, Volt Bank, Zinja, and let me see here if I get my notes. 
Um, but one of the reasons investors are wary is that four of those invest four of those new Australian banks um, have collapsed, uh, leaving only Judo Bank uh, as the only bank that has that has survived. Um, I remember interviewing Volt Bank uh, quite a while back. Now, according to now this is Judo Bank saying. Um, back in 2018, the Australian authorities started to issue new banking licenses for the first time in 40 years. They issued four licenses, including to Judo Bank. The three other banks, which they claim were much more technology-focused, have all since failed. And so I think the point they're making is, you know, a lot of the fintech revolution was started by people outside the traditional financial services industry thinking that they could do things better. And there's a lot of validity in that. I'm not kind of defending um, traditional financial ecosystem as being wonderful and doing everything's, everything right. As we know, they often make huge global catastrophic mistakes, uh, 2008 uh, notwithstanding. But I think there is a element of when you come into a sector, whatever the sector is, you need to understand what it is you're building um, and fundamentally like what a bank is. Uh, what a bank is, which which will be the cover story for next month's uh, next month's banker. By the way, what what a bank is, you know, what are the regulations, you know, how how I spent a lot of time with startups where they come with the name of their product called, you know, something like Meadow Bank, and you're like, oh, do you have a banking license? Oh no, I'm like, well, you cannot call yourself a bank because that's a legal term. But there is no regulation about that that would uh, there there avoid. is oh, okay if you can if you cannot call yourself a bank unless you have a banking license. And that's a long process <laughs> yeah. in a lot of countries. It's an arduous process. Um, yeah, so I think in the sector, you should have a lot of knowledge about what you're doing and have um, outside of just knowing how to build open outsource apps. Yeah. <laughs> My view. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. I you agree? Yes. Oh, awesome. There is a lot of hype. So now I'm looking at my notes here at what we're going to talk about next. And I know that we had our moment of calm and rest in the beginning, but we're still talking about Silicon Valley Bank, <laughs> which, uh, you know, it's, it's the story that keeps on giving. So we've got a, a story on our website right now saying, do tech startups need their own bank? And this is from Anita Hauser. And she did a lot of the heavy lifting um, covering both the Credit Suisse collapse and the Silicon Valley collapse uh, over the past few weeks on the site. And this article kind of looks at, you know, Silicon Valley Bank was founded 40 years ago to serve a specific sector and understand their specific needs. And now, in certain forms, whether it gets bought, isn't really around a, a lot. And so, you know, the article kind of looks at whether or not we need more of that specialist banks. There are a lot of fintech kind of goes into specialist banks for, you know, like banks for... Uh, people, at the, um, you know, from the gay community, for example, or different um, groups, uh, immigrant groups, is, uh, for example. So, I don't know. Um, are those banks too small? Uh, should they not focus on, on, on certain groups? Or, or is there still a place for, uh, for banks that really kind of focus on uh, the needs of specific communities? Yeah, I think there must be a place also for, for these kind of institutions, but I think it all comes down on to regulation and how these institutions are 
regulated, right? I think that's the key point. I know. I know. We, we know how. Oh, we I know, know how that. Much, we know it's how always much, the same. We know how much banks love regu regulations. Yeah. <laughs> fun, fun, fun. I mean, it kind of it kind of goes into, um, you know, as we know with Silicon Valley Bank, the UK branch. Uh, during the weekend um, of that collapse, uh, they were eventually sold to HSBC for one pound. Um, and it was done very quickly and over the weekend so that they could put a, a lid on contagion. Um, and that deal could be done before the markets opened on the Monday. However, HSBC is now defending its investment <laughs> to its uh, Hong Kong shareholders. So HSBC Chair Mark Tucker has been forced to defend the purchase of Silicon Valley Bank's UK business at a fractious meeting with shareholders in Hong Kong. This is a story um, that is in the FT uh, today. Um, so local investors at the event in Kowloon's International Trade Center were forthright in their criticism of the bank's senior leadership over a deal struck over the course of the weekend after California-based SVB was shut down by regulators. One shareholder said it seemed too rust, rushed and risky and asked whether HSBC was acting on the orders of the UK government, remarks that prompted applause from the hundreds-strong audience. I kind of feel bad. I kind of think they're wrong. It was rushed, but rushed for a reason. And I think that HSBC got a pretty good deal out of buying the UK arm. There was very little downside and a lot of upside to it. But, um, but I guess, you know, maybe shareholders on the other side of the planet are looking at things differently. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that maybe shareholders all have their own kind of reasons for, you know, advancing their critiques. Mm. Um, and it seems quite, uh, I don't think it is possible that, you know, HSBC acted following the UK government. I think mm. yeah, that if they did it so quickly, they, they probably had their good reasons to do it, right? Yeah, I'm not sure whether, yeah, the UK government can order HSBC around yeah, yeah, <laughs> or yeah. any or any large bag. But, um, yeah, so it's it, it's one to watch, but I think that that's probably just, it makes an interesting headline, but I'm, I'm sure the uh, the acquisition will, will go through and we'll see how each, I know HSBC will be speaking um, at Money 2020 mm -hmm. um, very soon um, about the acquisition and what they plan on doing, doing with the bank. So, um, Kind of keeping with the UK, you know, the reason why I pulled this up, there's there are a lot of people um, that are kind of enamored with the 80s, um, that that kind of love that age of, of Reagan and Thatcher. Um, I'm going to hold my politics aside <laughs> for yeah. a second here. But um, Nigel Lawson, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, Exchequer uh, under Margaret Thatcher, uh, has died at the age of 91. And he was known as a radical tax-cutting chancellor and so enamored was he um that rishi sunak the current prime minister had a picture of him on his desk oh. which is very sweet <laughs> but um for those of you who uh were not alive in the 80s um don't do not remember nigel lawson he is the father of tv chef journalist personality oh, nigella lawson. i did a, i didn't know that. You see? <laughs> yes yeah and also dominic lawson who i think was uh, is editor of the sunday times newspapers so they're they're a pretty powerful family but um i happen to love nigella lawson she's one of my idols so yeah so very sorry she lost her father um because i know she lost her mother a very long time ago um so yeah i'm not i don't know if you have any views <laughs> i don't know if you were alive barbara yeah. <laughs> <laughs> probably lawson. i have views but yeah i mean as a yeah, mm, yeah. we we 
just focus on banking and economic <laughs> global economy. Anyway, so one of one of the the big architects of 1980s economies um, has died. So I think that's that's it for the banker midweek on this sunny sunny spring day as we go into Easter. And I just want to thank thank you, Barbara, very much for joining me. Oh, thank you, Liz, for inviting me. And uh, yeah, it's nice to come back soon <laughs> to hear about you. <laughs> Lovely. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Banker Midweek, part of the portfolio of podcasts from the editorial team at The Banker, available on thebanker.com and wherever you get your podcast fix. Search on The Banker Podcasts to listen to more.